kind of a difficult subject. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, we don't accept laziness when it comes to other areas of our life where things are meaningful to us, right? Our sports teams, we don't accept laziness. Uh, in our music, through our excellence, we don't accept laziness. And in our life of the mind, we also shouldn't accept laziness. So I'm going to stretch you guys hopefully a little bit this morning. Maybe this will be a Maybe this will be old hat for you guys, I don't know, but it, it may stretch you some. That's okay, it's good to be stretched. I'm going to talk about reality and about a approach to the scriptures and to biblical truth that is problematic, uh, a faulty approach that presses in on us both from the secular side but also from the religious side at times. I'm going to start with a passage from Proverbs. It's up here. Uh, this is from Proverbs chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. It says, Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. That's a phrase I actually want to focus on this morning. Most scholars agree that the book of Proverbs was written in large part to train young people who were preparing for leadership in the king's court in Israel. So it was produced, a lot of it was written by King Solomon, in some ways as a teaching manual in the king's court to train young people to govern, to reign with him in, in the nation of Israel. So this afternoon or this morning, uh, I want to draw some connections between what you guys are doing, your, your training, your developing uh, yourselves, and what Solomon was doing to train young people uh, in the book of Proverbs. And I also want to contrast Solomon's view of training with our modern secular view of training. Yesterday we had an election. I haven't even seen all the results yet. Uh, if somebody came to you from another planet and asked you, uh, how did you decide who you would vote for? Uh, when my wife and I were looking over our ballots, some of the choices were obvious to us. Some of the people on the ballots, we didn't know who they were more locally, so we had to do what we had to ask somebody who knew them, who knew more about the situation. Uh, our, our candidates themselves, how do they become qualified to lead? How do they become qualified to serve, to craft policy, to govern? We do hand over power to them to make important decisions for our lives and for our country, what traits or what qualifications do they offer as justification for their ability to lead? Where do they get their authority? Where do they get the right to tell us the things and why do we give them that right? this to another realm. If you have to have your appendix removed or you have a 
torn ACL and you have to have that repaired. Uh, what kind of qualifications are you looking for in a surgeon? Good looks. Uh, dynamic speaker. Uh, good, good motivational speaking abilities. Uh, no, right? What, what, what do we want in a good surgeon or a good uh, governor or a good uh, plumber? <laughs> I would argue that one of the main traits that we require from people before you listen to them and trust them or ask them to perform surgery on us is they need to know stuff, right? They must have a knowledge, a functional knowledge of reality. They know what needs to be done and they know how to do it. At least we, we hope they do, right? You don't care if your plumber looks like Brad Pitt. If he doesn't know how to fix a broken sewer line from your toilet, uh, it doesn't really matter. We need him to know things, right? So, we, we never would say about a plumber, he has some really interesting opinions, he has really strong opinions, right? But we, we want him to actually know. <laughs> we want his knowledge to be based in the reality of your plumbing problem, right? of your pipes. So truth, Truth is what happens when our knowledge matches reality. A little illustration for you here. Uh, let's say that you're hiking in the mountains, it's out in the wilderness, and you have a map. And that map, if it accurately describes the mountainous terrain in front of you, if it says uh, there's a mountain where there's actually a mountain, and if it says there's a valley on your map where there's actually a valley, it shows a river where there's actually a river, then we say that that map is true, right? That is, it, it accurately describes reality, the way that things really are. If the map doesn't match the reality of the terrain in front of you, then we say it's not true. And it's more or less true depending on how much or how little it actually reflects the terrain that's actually in front of you, right? So, so back to government leaders for a minute. And, and again, recall that Proverbs was written to prepare young people for, for government leadership. When people consult decision makers today about big problems in our society, does our society tend to turn toward those who have religious knowledge? For example, knowledge from the Bible. Does it, does it do that? In policy making, in, in, in the courts, do we tend to look to those with religious knowledge? We don't, actually. Quite the opposite. In fact, Religious knowledge today is singled out specifically for exclusion from the public square. If you come to a debate in the Senate, or if you listen to arguments from the Supreme Court, and, and an attorney speaking before the Supreme Court said, uh, I believe this is 
the way we should go with this decision because it's in the Bible, uh, he's probably going to be laughed out of the room. Or people are going to really look sideways at him, right? Uh, because, is this because the fact that, that, that religious knowledge has been excluded specifically from the public square, is this because the Bible's teachings have been tried and tested and found lacking, found to be false, found not to be an accurate representation of reality? Actually, no, that's not the reason. Uh, there is a specific reason why, in the past 50 years or so, that specific religious knowledge has been embargoed out of the public square. It's because we live in a time in history and in a culture with the strong superstition about what counts as knowledge, and specifically what counts as knowledge of reality. So our age that we live in right now has it's really a, a superstitious belief that the only thing that we can really know for certain is what? What, what kind of things really count today in society as, as really things that you can know to be true? Any ideas on this? The place where this is most obvious is in is in the university today. What is, what is it that people are really certain that we can actually know for true about reality? It's basically in the STEM fields of the university. Right? What does is, what is STEM stand for? Science, technology, engineering, and math, right? So it's knowledge of the physical world or knowledge of the material world, right? The actual stuff that you can put your hands on and touch, uh, things that you can put in a test tube or put on a scale and measure repeatedly through the scientific method, right? The only things that we are sure of today as a society is, is physical things. But is that an adequate view of reality? Are there things that are absolutely real, that could not be put in a test tube and measured repeatedly. Are there, are there things out there? Can you think, I actually asked my daughters this, I think we were working on a, I think Gracie was working on a science project for Mrs. Munt's class. And we were talking about actually this, this specific issue. Is there, can you give me an example of something that's real, that very much matters, that causes effects, but you couldn't put it in a test tube? Gracie had a really good answer. She said trust. Now, is trust a real thing? If it is a real thing, does it affect what people do or don't do? Yeah, trust is something real that people People will go completely this direction or completely that direction based on whether or not trust exists. Can you put trust in a test tube? Can you, can you hold it up on a scale? No, but it's, it's a real phenomenon. What about, what about historical knowledge? Did anybody in this room see Columbus discover in 1492 the, the New World? 
anybody seen photographs of that discovery or video footage? No, there aren't any, right? How, how do we know it actually happened? We can't, we can't repeat it. We can't put it in a, in a test tube and measure it. It's not repeatable. How do you know it was real? How, how, how do you know it was real? You take it on authority from, uh, from someone who came before you. It's received knowledge. So, so there's many kinds of knowledge that we treat as valid, absolutely certain forms of knowledge that, that we can't actually put our fingers on that's actually received knowledge, right? Historical knowledge is a good example of that. Here's another example. Uh, great literature, let's say uh, Shakespeare or Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, they teach us, if it's really good literature, teaches us true things about human nature. Things that can't simply be reduced, again, to a, to a test tube for repeated measurements, right? And yet, today, we're told that the only valid knowledge is the type of knowledge that's offered by science or technology. Uh, or from experts in the so-called social sciences. That's an interesting phrase that, well, that's a, that's a rabbit trail to get into, but people who, who claim to know how others behave, or perhaps how the brain works, or how groups of people behave. If you can put it in the test tube, we believe, then it counts as knowledge. If not, we think it's suspect. That's actually a superstition, it's actually a particular myth, but it's one that's really prevalent in our society today. Now, there's nothing wrong with science and technology properly ordered. They can be real gifts to the human race. They have been gifts in many ways when they're accepted thoughtfully as one of God's gifts. But to say that science provides the only valid, knowable knowledge of reality is an incredibly shrunken and narrow and impoverished view of knowledge and reality. You've probably heard this term, uh, postmodernism. Uh, I don't want to get into all these thickets, but, but basically postmodernism is a view that's prevalent today, particularly in, in high society and universities, that says that all knowledge of all kinds actually is suspect, that truth is uh, kind of a myth, uh, that, uh, that if, you, if you try to talk about things that are true, people are going to kind of look at you as sideways. Until, until, uh, the professor needs someone to look at his 401k or his benefits plans, or he has a leaky pipe in his uh, in his toilet. Then he actually uh, then he actually wants people who know things about reality. I've never actually met a postmodern plumber because we we want our uh, people who to, to do things for us. We want them to actually know truth about reality, right? So despite our society's enormous faith in science and technology, those fields still have no answers to some of the most terrible problems that beset the world today. In fact, some of our deepest problems are helped by science and technology. 
Some of them are made worse. For example, uh, take modern warfare, right? Advances in technology now allow us to kill thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in a single moment with the push of a button, right? So some of our, some of our deepest problems have gotten worse. <laughs> it, technology is not a, an unqualified blessing. It can be a blessing or a curse depending on how it's used, right? But our, our entire education system is geared almost entirely toward mastery of, of the STEM fields of science and technology in order to be able to manipulate the physical world, to, to control it, to master it. The idea is that young people will master it so that you can go off and market your, your talents, your tools to the highest bidder in the employment world. Uh, in universities today, STEM departments uh, have pretty much taken over the university. Humanities departments are in sharp decline. They're, they're, they're in free fall. Uh, a couple of you are interested in going to Hillsdale. Hillsdale is one of the, not, not doing a plug for particular, but it, it's one of the few places that actually is based on the humanities. The humanities were actually the the original reason given for universities was the humanities, to figure out what it means to be, uh, to, to live a life that's well lived. And today, uh, uh, well, the humanities were originally created for the study of uh, literature, of history, of philosophy, and uh, because, because great literature tells us helps us understand what it means to live well. But again, the humanities in our universities today are in free fall. Why? Because we're not even sure anymore what a human being is, let alone what it means to live well. In a, in a strictly material world, human beings are just uh, highly complex, evolved mammals. Uh, I, I helped Anna two weekends ago. She came home and she has a sociology class at UNL, and she was working on a paper. Uh, she was asked to write uh, uh, a paper on on gender and how it is a social construct, meaning uh, how it, it isn't actually grounded in something real. That it's actually socially constructed. That's a, that's a very postmodern idea that. It's something that you put together based on um, what you feel like. It's not grounded in reality. So we, we, we talked her through that. She wrote that paper. Uh, she got some pushback uh, from her professor. But she, she was able to, to talk about how certain things are real and we can actually know them. And not everything is socially constructed. Uh, there, there is a certain strain of thought in Christianity, and this is actually relatively new as well. We won't get into all of the whys and where this came from, but there is a certain approach to Christianity in, in conservative Christian circles that, that actually, in, in its own strange way, agrees with the secular approach, which says that knowledge and science 
should be kept separate from religious knowledge, and that exploring the creative world is vaguely dangerous. They've come to that conclusion because, because many popular views of science deny God, and so they've taken science to be more of an enemy of faith, and so there's been a shift to, to pull back into kind of a Christian ghetto, particularly in terms of knowledge. Uh, that's a really dangerous response. Uh, that, that idea, this, this, this pseudo-Christian idea, that's, that's actually pretty popular in conservative Christian circles, says that true piety, true spirituality, involves pulling your head back into a Christian shell and creating separate categories of truth. That science, we agree, is something people know. Faith is something that we believe. So we, we grit our teeth and we, we cover our eyes and close our ears and we just grit our teeth harder and believe, right? Doesn't Christian faith relegate you to an intellectual slum or intellectual backwater? Some think we should even, some Christians even think we should be proud of being in an intellectual backwater. I want to challenge that idea specifically because it's not Christian. Right? It's, not a, it's not a Christian response. It's not a biblical response. The Bible says that faith is what? Evidence of things not seen. That faith can be based on things that we can actually know, really know, to be true about reality. Think of what Paul said. This is Paul talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. This starts in verse 14, uh, goes through verse 18. This is Paul saying, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Notice what Paul does not say. He doesn't say, if Christ has not been raised, just close your eyes and plug your ears and believe harder, right? Take a blind leap. He doesn't say that. He, Paul's a realist. He says if this isn't true, if it didn't actually happen, <laughs> this is a, it's a complete colossal waste of time, right? We are fools if this isn't actually real and true. So this is a realist approach that Paul is taking toward knowledge, toward, toward reality. There's a, there's a realism in Paul's thinking here. It's not just wishful thinking against all evidence. If the resurrection didn't really happen, Paul says, then this is actually all a giant scam, right? Plugging our ears to reality is not Christian teaching. It's also not the response that the world needs from us. Most people would admit that our society is full of problems today, problems that are not decreasing, 
But as a society, we still stand helpless in the face of some of our deepest problems. So one thing that many, many modern people, including many Christians, fail to realize is that the, the Bible actually presents a body of knowledge about reality, about the world, about human beings, about the way that societies work and don't work, the way that relationships work or don't work. Today, and again, this is a pretty recent development, religion is now assumed to belong to the realm of belief, uh, mere belief, that is belief uh, with or without knowledge, knowledge optional, blind faith, right? No one version of religion is better than the next for whole. So knowledge that's put forth by religion belongs to the, the bargain basement aisle of mere opinion. Therefore, the logic goes, religious knowledge is not qualified to weigh in on matters of important public debate. One of the reasons why that's wrong is every single religion in the world is actually an attempt at describing reality, right? So we, we don't even respect other religions, other non-Christian religions, if we don't recognize that they are an attempt to, to describe or grapple with reality. So giving an example, uh, Gautama Buddha, who is the founder of Buddhism, he grew up in a very sheltered home, kind of a, an estate that was gated. And uh, as a young man, he went out, he left his, his parents' estate and went out into the wider world. In India, he encountered immense human suffering and misery. And he was deeply troubled by this, and he set about to construct an understanding of the world based on his observations, a set of teachings that would help to, to solve this problem of human misery and human suffering. His teachings were an attempt to explain reality, why life was so miserable, and how to solve that problem. He was, he was arguing based on an understanding of, of reality. Now, his solutions were quite different from those offered by Jesus Christ. He had a very different map than the map that Jesus offered. But they were both t attempting to, to explain the same world, the same reality. Now, they can't both be correct. If you have two maps and one mountain, the maps are different. They both can't be correct, right? But they both are claiming to represent knowledge of, of reality. So, secular society today embraces, again, the superstition or the myth that material reality, physical reality, is all that there is. At least it's all that we can, can know. This is dangerous for society when society believes it. It's, it's particularly dangerous when Christians also begin to believe it. Uh, society's decay is not something that we have a whole lot of control over we control, but in some ways we don't have a lot of control over, over those things. But as believers, we must be very clear-eyed in our understanding of, of 
of a Christian understanding of truth and not slide into that same ditch. Let, let me give you an example. In 1949, there was a famous movie made. I, I don't know if you've seen this or not. It's called Miracle on 34th Street. It was a Christmas movie. Uh, when, when Sandy and I were teaching in Asia, teaching English, one of my coworkers thought it would be a good idea to show this movie at Christmas time uh, to our students who were, who were young adults, uh, most of them non-believers, kind of as a pre-evangelism tool. Uh, the movie is about Santa Claus. It's set in New York City. There's, a, there's kind of a mentally ill, sort of deluded old guy who thinks he's, who actually thinks he's Santa. And he gets a job at Macy's department store as their, as their Christmas Santa, right? And there's a little girl, Susan, in the movie. She enters the picture. She meets Santa at Macy's. And Susan's mom is kind of a cold, calculating, scientific person, kind of cynical. She's taught her not to believe in fairy tales or myths, certainly not to believe in Santa. But little Susan, six-year-old Susan, becomes convinced that this charming old guy at Macy's is the real Santa. And I can't remember how this goes, but somehow the whole business ends up in a courtroom. Um, and Santa goes on trial to determine if he's real or not. Uh, the, the last scene of the movie shifts to a scene where there's, there's kind of weepy uh, violin music playing. And... Uh, Susan has failed to get the Christmas gift that she had asked for, and her mother has now gone through this change of heart, and her mother convinces Susan to believe again by telling her, this is the exact quote from the movie, Susan, faith is believing in things even if you know they aren't true. That's a terrible description of faith. <laughs> That's, that's terrible. That's blind faith, and it's incredibly destructive. And it's catastrophic to tell young people or any people that faith in God, like faith in Santa, must be clung to in the absence of reality, in the absence of knowledge. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible claims to present a body of knowledge of the world as it really is of human beings as they really are. Today, a lot of Christian adults try to treat biblical truth like it's something at a, at a pep rally. We're not convinced that it belongs in the realm of knowledge, so instead we try to stir up emotions, uh, really good music, really dynamic speakers, we try to fire people up to generate commitment or to muster up the will, that's not the approach that Jesus took. That's not the approach that older generations of saints took. They approached the Bible and, and Christian doctrine as a body of knowledge about reality. What if the Bible still does provide the most accurate description of human nature? What if someone actually could try it out, put it into practice in real life situations, 
and find out whether or not its teachings are actually true, whether or not they accord with reality. Well, as it turns out, you can still do that. You can test it out through practice. And if you do, you'll find, if you venture out on Christ, you'll find that actually nothing has changed. That Christian teaching is still true. It is still the greatest, most comprehensive explanation of reality that the world has, has ever received because the author of the Bible is the very same author of all of creation, of all of reality. Since God created it, he best understands how it works. Jesus offered real knowledge of real reality. You can test it. You can try it out. Knowledge of God that comes to us through our experience strengthens faith. Now, experience isn't the only thing, uh, but, but you can put this into practice and, and taste and see that it's good and that it's true. Jesus was not just another motivational speaker. In fact, if you look at the teachings of Jesus, he was kind of like the unmotivational speaker in a lot of ways. He actually sent people away. He said things that were deep enough that those who were just curiosity seekers went away, right? Jesus was not a super spiritual cheerleader urging people to plow forward in the face of reality or against reality. No. Jesus is the author of reality. Jesus is the smartest person who ever lived. He's the most knowledgeable person who ever lived. We tend to think of him as the nicest person who ever lived. He actually wasn't always that nice. <laughs> but he really, he was the most authoritative, most knowledgeable human being who ever walked on earth because he created the earth. He created quantum physics. He was there when the cosmos was designed. Colossians 1, right? He was there when human beings were designed. He designed them. He knows how human life works. You're, you're getting good teaching here at NC. Keep at it. Learn as much as you can about the natural world, about science. And also, as you study the Bible and Christian teaching, Approach it as a field of knowledge of reality. That's what the world needs from you today. Whether you become the next senator of the state of Nebraska or whether you become a plumber, you need knowledge of reality, of God's world. That's what the church needs from you. That's what the world needs from you. Not wishful thinking, not mere blind belief, but actual reality lived out as you walk with God, becoming a student of Jesus, experiencing his ongoing transformation in your life. Let's, let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are the author of all reality, the Lord of all things. Help us to develop a deeper appreciation, deeper, deeper respect for what Jesus knows, what he has to teach us, and to follow him on that basis. Let our faith be grounded in 
knowledge of you and your ways. And we ask this in Jesus' name.